This is the story about a writer who wrote about a killer and so much more. We're here to tell you about that writer, Michelle McNamara, and the writing that became the book, All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. We're happy you've joined us for episode three. Michelle McNamara died peacefully in her sleep while researching and writing the book, All Be Gone in the Dark, a shock to all who knew her. I always loved the thought of her when I would read True Crime Diary across the country in some dark writing room with the screen illuminating her, you know, figuring this stuff out. It was shocking. I, I heard about it on the same place I first heard about her, which was on Twitter. There's a sort of network of people I follow in the true crime and journalism world. None of us could believe it. We thought it was some kind of bizarre, fake report. It just seemed impossible, not only how young she was, but how vibrant and active. We were all waiting for the book, you know. We all knew she was working on it. Because she was working on it, you know, she wasn't on the blog, and, you know, we all missed her, you know. Um, So it just felt crushing and impossible, impossible. After Michelle's death, her husband, Patton Oswalt, and her book agent and editor had to decide how to honor her work, how to publish her book. Together with Michelle's lead researcher, they had to trace Michelle's footsteps, starting with her writing room. Patton Oswalt. The room started off as our daughter's playroom when she was a little, little baby. It was upstairs in the back of the house, very, very sunlit, a lot of sunshine and open windows. As our daughter grew older, she wanted to go outside more, so we converted the garage into like an open backyard area, and then that room upstairs became filled with shelves and shelves of Michelle's police files and notebooks. She describes at one point that there's all these yellow legal pads that she would write on for 10 or 15 pages and then kind of leave off and then later on, a couple days later, grab a a fresh new pad. and It was just that there were literal visual, symbolic representations of the stop-and-start thought process. And it was also... Without trying to sound too pretentious, it was also a mood book. As much as she had police files up there, she had other books that she would read, both true crime books and just fictional books just to get a, you know, she had a lot of William Maxwell's novels um, in that room. She had a lot of poetry that she would read and especially um, a lot of Joan Didion books. Any books about California in the 70s to try to grasp what the overall mood and sense was of the day-to-day living in that area in the 70s and what the zeitgeist was and then how that would affect how people would react to the crimes, how they would view the crimes, and how the police would selectively go about trying to solve them. Because she wanted to capture what people's thought processes were. Because the thought process of somebody in the early 70s is a much different thought process from someone in the early 80s or the early 90s. And she was very conscious of trying not to put her 2015 eyes on a 1972 problem, if that makes sense. So she was very aware of that. Michelle was dealing with a subject that demands sustained, often unrewarded attention to yield any sort of satisfaction or closure. It requires the attention of not just a single reader, but of dozens of cops, data miners, and citizen journalists to spark even a minor breakthrough. 
Michelle earned and sustained that attention through flawless, compelling writing and storytelling. You understand everyone's point of view in her writing, and none of her subjects or characters she invented. They're people that she got to know, cared about, and took the time to really see the police, the survivors, the bereaved, and, as hard as it is for me to fathom, even a wounded, destructive insect like the Golden State Killer. She would wake up screaming a lot. If I came up late, like if I was writing or if I was watching a movie, it wasn't that she was scared of the killer. She had to keep putting herself, and you see this in the descriptions of the victims, of suddenly you wake up and there's a flashlight in your face. Oh, my God, how did this person get in the house? And there's that chilling moment in the book when the woman is cleaning her house and lifts up the sofa cushions, and there are ligatures and handcuffs. The guy had already been in the house getting ready to go after her. She had a lethal level of empathy. She could understand the terror of the victims. She could understand the rage and frustration of these detectives. And she would also, as best she could, try to understand the motivation and the, to himself at least, the justifications and reasons for the killer, which is a very dangerous path to start stepping down. A perfect example of Michelle's lethal level of empathy can be found in this excerpt from the book, where using a pseudonym, she imparts the essence of the life of one victim. He bypassed rooms with closed doors and headed directly for the master bedroom in the northwest corner of the house. Standing in the doorway, he faced the bed from a distance of about 10 feet. A woman lay there alone. She was sleeping, positioned on her stomach, face to pillow, the kind of flung-off-the-cliff-of-consciousness sleep that anchors rather than drifts. Who was she in the moment before he wrenched her awake from unburdened sleep? Esther MacDonald, pseudonym, was small. What the generation when her name was popular might have called a slip of a thing. Back home in a cold Midwestern state, a marriage at 19 had lasted a decade with no kids or staying power. Suddenly she was 30, which is older in middle America than on the coasts. California Dreamin' wasn't a song, but a siren call for a sunnier future. She and a girlfriend moved to San Francisco. The summer of love was over, but the Bay Area retained its reputation for improvisation, a place where you could shed your past and debut a new life. There were jobs, a wholesale florist and an electric motor repair company. A pawnbroker, 20 years her senior, wooed her with jewelry and invited her to live with him in Danville. The house was five miles from the Calaveras Fault, a major branch of the San Andreas. Six months later, they split amicably. He moved out, put the house on the market, and told her she was welcome to stay until it sold. A romance was bubbling with a coworker. The pawnbroker was still around. Matters of the heart were bidirectional and unresolved. That's who she was as she slept around 2 a.m. on a cold night in December. A woman starting over in a state where the covered wagons stopped and storied reinventions began. A woman navigating an unremarkably complicated love life. A woman about to be irrevocably changed. What is the lasting damage when you believe the warm spot you were just sleeping in will be your grave? Time sands the edges of the injuries, but they never lose their hold. A nameless syndrome circulates permanently through the body, sometimes long dormant, other times radiating powerful waves of pain and fear. A hand gripped her neck, a blunt-tipped weapon dug into the side of her throat. 
At least a dozen investigators in Northern California could have correctly predicted the first words whispered in the dark. Don't move. Don't scream. He was back. Or more accurately, he had doubled back. The uncertainty of his course, the randomness of his strikes made him an unpredictable dark force, a one-man crime wave. Editor Jennifer Barth. So Dan and I spoke and we agreed that, you know, it really was up to Patton, you know, that he was intimately involved with the project, aware of all Michelle's research, knew where everything was. We were pretty sure that there was enough material. We estimated that Michelle had probably written about two thirds of it and that we would have had, you know, a very healthy editorial back and forth once she had finished the book, but that, you know, that we did want to pursue it. We wanted to move forward. And that if Patton was game, then we would figure out how to fill in the missing pieces. Then Patton really took the lead, you know, with Dan's advisement, I think, to get um, Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes involved and they had been working with Michelle beforehand. Um, so they were very involved in the project and knew where things were. Researcher Paul Haynes. Shortly after Michelle passed, I was contacted by Patton's assistant and proposed putting me in touch with two other true crime writers that uh, were friends of Michelle's, Billy Jensen and Steve Huff, who lived on the East Coast. I connected with both of them around this time. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter, uh, Steve's sister passed away. And uh, I think that sort of derailed his involvement, uh, unfortunately. But I continued working with Billy Jensen, whom Michelle had known uh, for a few years. And they, they co-presented a panel at uh, South by Southwest, I think in 2013. So shortly after Michelle's memorial, which I think followed in May, you know, I began working with Billy and looking at Michelle's hard drive and materials that she left behind and the stuff that was unfinished, notes and first drafts. And, you know, we began organizing it, considering the structure of the book as Michelle had envisioned it and the structure that we would be able to develop given what we had to work with. Our concern ultimately was, you know, do we have enough material for a book? And if not, you know, how do we augment what exists? As we explored uh, what Michelle left behind, we realized that, yeah, there was sufficient material for a finished book. Agent Dan Greenberg. Paul Haynes and Billy Jensen. Paul was Michelle's researcher that she uh, met, I think, through True Crime Diary. He was somebody who posted who was a, an amateur sleuth himself. And Billy is a crime writer that was friends with Michelle and they would talk and he was going to be as helpful as possible. And they went into her computer at a certain point to see what there was. They went through boxes of papers that she had, which were the files that the different jurisdictions had sent her to go through as she was working on the book. And at a certain point, as they were going through those boxes, we came to understand that there wasn't the possibility of connecting a new writer to the book to finish connecting the dots. She was researching, but it was still all over the place and there was not a clear line 
from the pages that existed and the research that existed to the book that Michelle wanted to write. So we figured out a way to get as close as we could. As Jennifer and I started talking to Patton, Billy and Paul, we started piecing together the sections that could ultimately comprise the book. And that would be the cleanest possible version of Michelle's completed pages. I would say 80 to 90% of those pages were clean. I remember as soon as, you know, in the days after Michelle's death, Gillian Flynn emailed me to say, this is so terrible. And if there's anything I can do to be helpful when the time comes, call on me. So I immediately thought, Gillian can write the introduction and Billy and Paul could write something. We weren't sure exactly what it was that would pick up after the point where Michelle's actual writing ends and give a snapshot of where she was in the research, what the different strands were. And they weren't able to complete the work, but they were able to say, this is what she was working on. This is what she was thinking of in terms of completing the book. Also, this is what she was like as a person. So it was a combination of crime writing and research And this is the person who wrote those 200 or so pages that came before that you just finished. I remember looking through a list of Michelle's titles and seeing I'll Be Gone in the Dark and remembering when I read that, which is something that the killer used to whisper in people's ears as he was about to leave after violating them and breaking into their homes saying, you'll never find me because I'll be gone in the dark. And I said, that's the title. And I remember she agreed immediately, Patton agreed. And so that's what went on the proposal when it was submitted and it's never changed. Editor Jennifer Barth. The other thing we decided was um, we knew that Michelle had fans out there and some of them were high profile. And because we decided we didn't want to just bring this out, we wanted to bring it out in a big way and really do Michelle's memory justice and do the book justice. Um, we approached Gillian Flynn, who we knew was a fan, and asked her to write the introduction. And then we asked Patton to write um, the afterwards. So I think, you know, we ended up with a very different book than we might have imagined in terms of its format and its structure. But I think the essence of the book is where we would have arrived in any case. And we all set out working on that together and organizing and putting timeframes in place and asking Gillian to complete the introduction by X date. And Paul and Billy would write their part three together and telling Patton that we would need his final piece. And at a certain point during that process, Patton said, I want the epilogue to be Michelle's letter to an old man, which was one of the chapters that she had handed in to Jennifer already, which was a picture of the killer in her head of what would happen when they caught him. Almost like poetry, but 2,000 or so words about when we catch you, when we close the door behind you, a great section. So it was Patton's idea to make that last. An excerpt from Michelle's Letter to an Old Man. One day soon, you'll hear a car pull up to your curb, an engine cut out. You'll hear footsteps coming up your front walk like they did for Edward Wayne Edwards, 
29 years after he killed Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew in Sullivan, Wisconsin, like they did for Kenneth Lee Hicks, 30 years after he killed Lori Billingsley in Aloha, Oregon. The doorbell rings. No side gates are left open. You're long past leaping over a fence. Take one of your hyper, gulping breaths, clench your teeth, inch timidly toward the insistent bell. This is how it ends for you. You'll be silent forever, and I'll be gone in the dark. You threatened a victim once. Open the door, show us your face. Walk into the light. Jennifer Barth. We agreed that we didn't want to mess with Michelle's writing, that her writing needed to stand as it was, unless there were typos or things that were confusing, we would leave it as is, because we just didn't feel right going in there and messing around. And also a lot of it just doesn't need it, as you can tell from the book. And that we would, rather than write new material, we would just fill in with her notes and put in some editor's notes as a guide. Paul Haynes. You know, as exciting as it is, and certainly it's a great privilege to be a part of the book, you know, it's tempered by the loss of Michelle. And, you know, it's ultimately quite bittersweet. For me, it's like, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I don't know how I feel. I think that there have been so many overlapping feelings that it's just a soup for me at this point. Michelle's death was devastating to me. And, you know, then it reached a point where I just, I don't know, I felt like maybe I hadn't fully digested it because I really wasn't feeling it anymore. And I think it's largely because I was still reading her words and and her, you know, voice was still with me every day. You know, I, I saw her, I'd say, two or three times a month, but the bulk of our communication was electronic. And so revisiting that communication, there's this kind of, you know, immediacy about her that, um, you know, it, it makes it feel to me like she's still present. LA Magazine editor Nancy Miller. As we explore this culture of crime and that people sort of absorb it as entertainment, I guess I want to say just be judicious in how you consume that. And I think Gillian Flynn says it really well in the beginning of the book. When you know that someone else's tragedy is part of what you're enjoying as entertainment, choose wisely, choose good stuff. And I think Michelle's book is evidence of that good stuff. That's it. Writer Megan Abbott. I think one of the reasons that Golden State Killer is particularly, I was particularly glad she was going to write that book because it's not glamorous, but it's absolutely something any of us can identify with, being terrorized in your own home. It's everyone's worst fear, right? Um, home invasion, a woman alone at night with her kids asleep. And there's nothing glamorous about, there's no way to make that glamorous. And and yet it, it really... Um, you know, it really speaks to something, something primal, you know, about a divide has been crossed and, um, and his sort of facelessness is almost too much for us to bear. The Manson thing in some ways feels governable to us. It feels like it was solved, it was handled, they all went to prison and they're never getting out, you know. Um, and I think it's really one of the, you know, she's, in this book, she's going to a much deeper place because it's not a place of glamour. The hardest part about it for me, about putting this book together, has been that it'll be another door closing for Michelle kind of being a presence in the world for me. You know, like it was, that, that sounds kind of morbid and sick. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very 
very happily remarried to an amazing woman, but there is this, you know, okay, well, when the book is done, that's one less un like you know, and people that have that have been widowed that I've talked to in in grief groups and, and online have said, yeah, there are certain little milestones where you're going, oh, you, you know, oh, this is the this is the first Christmas that happened in a year where they completely were didn't even exist, or this is the, like so. There's all these, and this is a, this is a huge. It feels like a blow. How will I measure the success for the book? I mean, for me, it'll be I'll I'll, I'll measure the success through. I can only measure it through Michelle's eyes, which would be, does this create any huge steps forward in capturing this guy? Because she, you know, she, and there were, there were points where it looked like, you know, there were certain suspects that, as she would say, knowing cop terminology, oh, this guy's really good for it. This guy's really good for it. And I go, well, what happens if you catch him? Do you, and she goes, then I don't publish the book. I don't care. But like, if, as long as he's captured, that's the main focus. I'll just write another book. I want as many people to hear about this book and then to read this book and to learn about Michelle and become interested in her as a person and a writer, not just this one book. I want it to be her legacy. I think that's sort of the number one objective that that comes to mind. And I would love for this case to be solved. Patton Oswalt from the afterword to the book. What interested her, what sparked her mind and torqued every neuron and receptor were people, specifically detectives and investigators, men and women who, armed with a handful of random clues, or more often than not, too many clues that needed to be sifted through and discarded as red herrings, could build traps to catch monsters. Ugh. Okay, that was the movie tagline description of what Michelle did. Sorry, it's hard for me not to spiral upward into hyperbole when I talk about her. I was married to a crime fighter for a decade, an emphatically for real, methodical, little gray cells, great brain type crime fighter. I saw her righteous fury when she'd read survivor testimony or interview family members who were still reeling from the wrenching away of a loved one. There were mornings when I'd bring her coffee and she'd be at her laptop weeping, frustrated and worn flat by another lead she'd chased that left her smashed nose first against a brick wall. But then she'd have a slug of caffeine, wipe her eyes, and hammer away at the keyboard again. A new window opened, a new link pursued, another run at this murderous, vile creep. She always said, I don't care if I'm the one who captures him. I just want bracelets on his wrists and a cell door slamming behind him. And she meant it. She was born with a true cop's heart and mind. She craved justice, not glory. Michelle was an incredible writer. She was honest, sometimes to a fault, with her readers, with herself, and about herself. You see that in the memoir sections of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And you see how she was honest about her own obsessions, her own mania, her at times dangerous commitment to the pursuit, often at the expense of sleep and health. The mind for investigation and logic, the heart for empathy and insight. She combined those two qualities in ways I'd never encountered before. Without even trying, she made me rethink my own path in life, my own way of relating to people and the things that I valued. She made everything about me and everyone around her better. And she did it by being quietly, effortlessly original. I'm still hoping he hears that cell door slam behind him. And I hope she hears it somehow too. Michelle McNamara was the author of the website truecrimediary.com 
a must-read in the crime world, followed by everyone from Conan O'Brien to Gillian Flynn. She had an MFA in fiction writing from the University of Minnesota, and she'd sold television pilots to ABC and Fox, and a screenplay to Paramount. She'd also worked as a consultant for Dateline NBC. Until her death, she lived in Los Angeles. She is survived by her daughter, Alice, and her husband, Patton Oswalt. The book that this podcast is based on, All Be Gone in the Dark, is available wherever print books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. It's published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. This podcast is a production of Harper Audio. Nathan Rossborough, Technical Director. Anna Maria Alessi, Executive Producer, Writer, and Editor. 